Don't ever assume I know what's going on. So we have to dismiss our younger children to Children's Church. Are they following you, Mr. Goodson? All right. Follow Mr. Goodson. Good advice most of the time. Don't elaborate. The rest of you want to get out your uh, message outline so you can follow along. There is a box of lost and found. Um, this, it's from the school. They're not sure if it's for our church or for the Hispanic church that meets after us. But if you're missing anything, come look uh, after church. So they asked us to announce that. We're in 1 John chapter 5. I believe this is the 13th sermon. I kind of lost count and had to go back and check. Um, in 1 John. And this is one that looks simple, but is somewhat complicated. So you'll have to listen carefully. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are needy people. We come to your word and we cannot even understand it without your Holy Spirit to come and open our hearts and minds and enable us to understand it. So we ask that, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would come and enable us to understand what you have caused to be written here for our profit, for your glory, and for Jesus' sake. Amen. I read this week what I thought was an astonishing statistic. 83% of Americans claim to be Christian. So I thought I would look that up. Sounded a tad high to me. And when you Google the word Christian, if you have nothing to do for the rest of your life, um, you can look everything up because you get 542 million pages that would be relevant to your search, most of which have absolutely nothing to do with historic Christianity. Based on this, uh, I surmise that perhaps some people are confused by the word Christian and what it means to be one, and therefore we need to ask ourselves, what is at the core of Christianity? So I went back and, and looked up some stuff, and in 2001, the uh, well-known pollster uh, George Barna tried to narrow the definition of Christian and uh, to get a better number, and he classified those who claim to be, quote, born again as all who say they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their life today 
And second qualifier, uh, those who indicate that they believe that when they die, they will go to heaven because they have confessed their sins and accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. So if you've made a, a, a personal commitment and it's still important, and you've confessed your sins and accepted Jesus. So that's how he defined it. And by his uh, polls and criteria, approximately 40% of the U.S. population, give or take 15 million people, uh, approximately 100 million Americans claim to be born again. You know, polls always have sort of this measure. And they, you know, they say, small, you know, give or take 3%. When you're talking about 260 million people, 3% is a lot of people. And, um, and so you look at that, 40, we cut it from 83% to 40%, and that's approximately 100 million Americans claim to be born again. And we should rejoice at that number. It's a really big number. It's still less than China, but it's still really big. But as Reformed theologian Michael Horton has lamented, he said, Gallup and Barna hand us survey after survey demonstrating that evangelical Christians are just as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. So I looked at that, and I wondered what changed first? Did we stop believing the truth and then let our lifestyles become unbiblical? Or did we start living wrong and gradually let that influence what we believe? Or have we simply wholeheartedly swallowed the false teachings of our culture and let our faith, go down the, faith and life go down the tubes simultaneously? It just seems clear that for Christians in America in general, our lives aren't all that guided by faith, and our faith isn't seen all that much in our lives. And I think there's a ton of reasons for that. But surely one of the big ones is simply this. We have forgotten who Jesus is. We have forgotten who Jesus is. And so we know neither what to believe or how to live. And I looked at this a little bit more, and it, it, apparently it seems to me that many people who claim, who profess to be born again are in danger of having their desire to be inclusive wind up obstructing the teaching of Christianity. We see websites and churches alike being ambiguous about who Jesus is. And to gain inclusiveness, Christ is ambiguously defined. And defining Jesus subjectively is becoming the norm. You just sort of have to go cruise around those 542 million websites to get that idea. Does what we say about who Jesus is and what Jesus did matter? Or can we simply come up with our own personal version that fits our own personal preference? To help us answer the question of what a Christian truly is, we turn again to 1 John. 
and to the Apostle John. Today we're in chapter 5. So let's turn and look at this text. John starts by reminding us about the new birth, verse 1. The new birth. Hopefully that's a blank there in your outline. Sometimes I forget to take the words out and you get freebies. He says, verse 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, there's something very odd here. So odd, in fact, that every time I read this, I think I've read it wrong. It seems as though John is now saying everything that he said before, except now he's saying it backwards. In the previous four chapters, he's been telling us that the way we know that we love God is by asking the question, do we love God's children? And now he seems to be saying the opposite. Here he's saying the way we know we love God's children is that we love God. Now, there's a believer, and he is unsure of whether or not he's passed from death to life. He's unsure of whether or not he has eternal life. He's unsure about his assurance of salvation. And so he asks, how can I be sure that I love God? I know I must love God. I should love God. I want to love God. But how can I be sure that I love God? And John says, first four chapters, well, do you love God's children? And that's how you know if you love God. And now this believer comes back and he says, well then, how do I know that I love God's children? And John says, well, you know you love God's children if you love God. Right. I know I love God if I love God's children, and I know I love God's children if I love God. This is getting to be a complicated argument. And I think what John is trying to say here in a somewhat complex way uh, the way my mother would phrase it is that it's six of one, half dozen of the other. A little bit of this or a little bit of that. And so we're tossed from loving God to loving God's children and then from loving God's children back to loving God. Uh, and he's commanded both. How is he commanded we love him? By loving his children. And we're commanded to love his children by loving him. And so the question that came to mind is, where is all this love coming from? And John starts off this chapter by telling us. He's reminding us about the importance of the new birth. It's found in that little expression you find twice in verse 1. Been born of God and been born of him. And he says the faith, the belief of everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God because that faith comes after we're born of God. John is very particular in the original Greek to put it in that way. You're not born again because you believe. You're born again, the theological word is regenerated, which then makes you able to believe. Regeneration comes first, then faith. Not everybody agrees with that. It's okay, we still love them because they're children of God. You can't really get out of this loving God. Love, you know, it just always comes back. But this new birth or being born again 
is not just a buzzword that belongs to certain groups of Christians or to certain denominations. It is a Bible term. It's a Bible phrase. What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be born of God? Well, chapter 3 of John's Gospel, not 1 John, but the Gospel of John, chapter 3, we went through that just a few weeks ago, seemed like it. Okay, maybe a year and a half or more. But there's an incident where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus the Pharisee, Nicodemus the great Bible teacher of the day. And Jesus is having a conversation with this great Bible teacher about Christianity 101. What does it take to enter the kingdom of God? What does it take in order for us to be able to see the kingdom of God? What does it take for us to be able to understand spiritual things? And that's hard. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So therefore, a man without the Spirit of God doesn't understand these things. So we're back at the beginning of John chapter 3. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and it says, this man came to Jesus by night. And said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then two verses later in John 3, 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now Jesus isn't saying uh, this to him simply because he's a Pharisee. He's saying this to him because he's a sinner. Unless God graciously works in our understanding, in our wills, in our minds, in our affections, a supernatural work that brings us out of darkness and into light, we cannot see. We cannot grasp. We cannot appreciate the kingdom of God. Do you remember what Nicodemus said to Jesus back in John 3? Jesus has just told Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot understand the kingdom of God. You can't understand spiritual things. And so what does Nicodemus say? I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> Jesus is saying, unless you understand these things, it's indicative that you haven't been born again. And Nicodemus says, but I don't understand what you're talking about. And so I wonder this morning, do you understand what John's talking about here? Have you been born again? Have you experienced that supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings you out of your natural condition and into the condition whereby the Spirit of God dwells in you and you're adopted into the household and family of God and therefore you're a member of that family and you're an heir and joint heir with Christ? Or are you saying with Nicodemus this morning, I don't understand what you're talking about? Friend, Listen to Jesus, because he's saying, if you don't understand these things, it's indicative that you're not a member of the kingdom of God. You need to be born again, born of God, in order uh, to enter, in order to see the kingdom of God. And that's what John's talking about here when he says to be born of God and to be born of him. He's talking about those who have been born again. 
And if this person is still not sure, he says, well, here's some tests to help you be sure. Let's examine these tests and apply them to your life. So we start verse 2 with the first test, which is love. The first test is love. It says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. You know, when I started this series at the beginning of the summer, I said the Apostle John was stepping into a messy situation in the church because there existed this disconnect between profession and practice. There were a lot of people who were claiming to be Christians but weren't living like they were Christians. Dr. John uh, Stott says that John gives them three primary tests to expose these false teachers who profess Christ, but they don't possess Christ. He says, John, John Stott, we may conclude then that against the Christological heresy, the false teachings about Jesus, their moral indifference and the arrogant lovelessness of Gnosticism, John lays his emphasis on three marks of authentic Christianity. One, belief in Jesus as the Christ come in the flesh. That's the doctrinal test. Two, obedience to the commandments of God. That's the holiness test. And brotherly love for one another. And that's the social test. And the first of these tests in our passage today is the love uh, test. Love is a result of the new birth. There are people who claim to be Christians in John's time and in our time, but who have no sense of a connectedness with brothers and sisters in Christ. By their lifestyle, John says, they're declaring themselves not to be born of God. John says, everyone who loves the Father loves his children as well. It's the very nature of a child of God to love other children of God. And we've been here before. We've been here many times before in 1 John. So why is John fixated about loving one another? Because he heard Jesus three times speak of it in the upper room, words that John would never forget. John 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then John 15, 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus says things three times because he wants to make sure the disciples hear it, get it. Apparently they're slow. But it's also written to us, so you can draw the comparison. And John is saying that's the mark of authentic Christianity. This is the sign that you're born again, that you have true faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, that you love one another, that you love the people that God loves. So that's the first test, is love. Then John moves on to the second test. They get harder. And the second one is obedience. Verse 3, obedience. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Love divorced from obedience to the commands of God is not love. So John immediately passes from love to this matter of God's commandments, saying, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Now, Christians frequently, 
attempt to turn love for God into this mushy emotional experience. And John doesn't allow that in this epistle. Love for one another means love that expresses itself with actions and in truth. 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And similarly, love for God means love that expresses itself in obedience to his commandments. At this point, John says what I thought was sort of a striking and unexpected thing. He says, and his commandments are not burdensome. Have you tried to keep them all? I don't know about you, but I find it kind of tough. I don't find it all that easy to keep all of the commandments all of the time, but that's just me. And I don't think he's talking about complete obedience to all the commands of God is a a particularly easy thing to achieve. If that were true, Christians wouldn't sin. John clearly says elsewhere that they do. I think he means two separate things here. First, I think he's thinking of the contrast that Jesus made between the commands of the scribes and the Pharisees, which he called heavy loads in Matthew 11, or excuse me, Matthew 23, uh, verse 4. He said their commands were heavy loads. And he contrasted that with what Jesus said about his own commands, which are easy. In Matthew 11, he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Pharisees had created thousands of minute requirements by which the central commands of the law were to be guarded. But they're not God's commands, and they weren't life-giving. They were burdensome. And Jesus cut through these man-made rules to expose the central heart attitudes that are required, but that God would give to his people, to those who had been born of him. So that's the first thing. His commandments are not burdensome because they come from God, not from man. The second thing is John's probably thinking of is suggested by this passage here. He's writing of the new birth that Christians have from God, the resulting love they have from him. And without this life and without this love, uh, the commands of God could be burdensome. I think Rich told you last week uh, that without uh, the Holy Spirit working in you, loving other people is impossible. And you probably have some experience with that from trying to love other people. And sometimes you find it impossible. Not everyone is easy to love. You guys are, but not everyone else. But now the life of God within makes obedience to the commands possible. And the love the Christian has for God and the love that we have for each other, (coughs) excuse me, makes this desirable, makes it something we want to do. test is love. Second test is obedience. But there's one more. There's a third test, and that's faith. Verses 4 and 5. The third test is faith. It says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Faith is a consequence of the new birth. Verse 1, everyone 
who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And now verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And John says, if you're born again, you will demonstrate that by your faith. Faith in what? Faith in whom? Faith in Jesus, verse 1, as the Christ. Faith in Jesus, verse 5, as the Son of God. A person who is born again is a person who has experienced a new birth and manifests that by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Deliverer, the Savior, the only Savior of sinners. A person who is born again demonstrates that by saying and believing in his or her heart that Jesus Christ alone is without sin, that Jesus Christ alone lived a perfect life, that Jesus Christ alone died on the cross of Calvary in my place as a substitute for my sins, bearing my guilt, bearing my shame, bearing the wrath of God that my sins deserved, and that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ defeats all enemies. A person who is born again believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Lord of glory, that he is the one true God. The Apostle Paul came to believe that. Remember, Paul was a devout Jew, a very strict Jew. He had no doubt recited every day of his conscious life the Shema of Israel. Behold, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And now he comes to confess that this Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, who went about preaching and teaching, this Jesus who died on the cross is none other than the Lord of glory. You think of James, the Lord's brother. You know, who would, who would know the best? The one who wrote the epistle of James, who grew up with Jesus in Nazareth. James knew Jesus when he was six. James knew Jesus when he passed from 6th grade to 7th grade, or whatever grades they had then. James knew Jesus as a teenager. He knew Jesus when he was 18. And James, in the opening verse of his epistle, confesses that Jesus Christ, his brother, is God, the Lord of glory. James 1.1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember what Jesus once asked his disciples? He said, who, who do men say that I am? And some say, oh, they, they think you're Elijah. Some say you're a great prophet. And how did Jesus respond to that? He said, but who do you say that I am? Mark 8, 29, the high point of the gospel of Mark. And Peter responds, Peter answered him, you are the Christ. It's still a good question but who do you say that I am? There's lots of other people saying other things today. The brilliant philosopher, a very famous author, A.N. Wilson. He says, quote, Jesus was a good Jewish lad with a brilliant flair for shrewd moral teaching. And he would have been horrified at the thought of people starting a church and worshiping him. He certainly didn't rise from the dead. He was a mere man. That's what A.N. Wilson thinks. But what about you? Who do you say Jesus is? Dr. Barbara Thiering lectures on the Dead Sea Scrolls at Sydney University in Australia. She says, quote, 
Jesus was part of a sect who lived in the Qumran district. He was married with three children. Then he divorced and remarried, and he didn't die on the cross. That's what Barbara Thiering thinks. But what about you? Who do you say Jesus is? Bishop John Shelby Spong, now retired Episcopalian bishop from Newark, New Jersey, thinks that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin because Mary was raped. Jesus himself got married, and the wedding in Cana of Galilee was his. He also thinks Paul was gay. <laughs> That's what Bishop Spong thinks. But what about you? Who do you say Jesus is? My friends, they will answer for themselves on the day of judgment when they see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God in triumph and in glory. They will answer for their words. They will answer for everyone they led astray with their false teaching. But what do you think? Who do you say Jesus is? John says... The one who is born again, the one who has entered into the kingdom of God, the one who sees and appreciates and understands spiritual things is the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's the true gospel of God's grace. And if you don't have that, you're just stuck with religion. When many people first hear the distinction between religion and the gospel. They think it just, it sounds too easy. It's a good deal. If that's Christianity, all I have to do is get a personal relationship to God, and then I can do anything I want. But those words can only be spoken by someone outside of an experience of radical grace. No one from the inside speaks like that. In fact, as some of you know, grace can be quite threatening. Tim Keller tells the story of meeting a woman who had started coming to his church, a Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. She said that she'd gone to church all her time growing up, and she had never before heard a distinction drawn between the gospel and religion. She always heard that God accepts us only if we're good enough. And she said this new message of grace was scary. And Tim asked her, why, why is it scary? And this is what she replied, quote, If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I'd have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. That woman understood the dynamic between grace and gratitude. This woman could immediately see that wonderful beyond belief teaching of salvation by sheer grace has an edge to it. She knew that if she was a sinner saved by grace and nothing of herself, she was, if anything, now more subject to the sovereign lordship of God. She knew if Jesus really had done all this for her, she wouldn't be her own. She would be joyfully, gratefully belonging to Jesus who provided all this for her at infinite cost to himself. Grace is only a threat to the illusion that we're free, autonomous selves living life as we choose. However, when we're saved by sheer grace, 
then we're able to exercise real faith, faith that is seen in real actions, obedient to the word of God, and shown in acts of love to real people. And when we can see that, John says, we can be sure that we have been born of God. What is it that we really believe? Who do we say Jesus is? Lord, I pray that your spirit would be active in our hearts and our minds today, that you would be drawing us to yourself, that we might be able to say that we believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Lord, I just ask that you would bring that about. Confirm it in those who hold it as a firm conviction. And Lord, lead us for those of us who who aren't sure, who struggle, who doubt. 